You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. New City Family, 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we're going to pick up this morning. Uh, we'll be in verses 8 through 12 today. Um, as you're turning there, I just want to address this has been a heartbreaking week in our city. Um, as you know, there was an officer who was killed in the line of duty, and uh, the person who killed him ended up dying. Another officer was wounded. Man, I just like goodness, I was talking with Ben earlier, and, and I just feel the brokenness of the world this week, man, I feel it, and so if you're feeling that, you are not alone, and uh, I, I, I want us to pray for the people who have lost people that they love, I would encourage you this week, pray actively for those people that God would draw near to them, make himself obvious to them. Um, the other thing I want to clue you guys in on, I want you to pray for me because this next weekend I'm going to be in Iowa, the, uh, the, the booming metropolitan city of Adele, Iowa. Um, there's a town called Adele. Isn't that cool? That's kind of fun. Um, I'm going to be there preaching at one of our partner churches this next weekend. And so uh, our friend Keith will be bringing the word. Um, I want you guys to know over the next season, uh, you're going to be hearing from a lot of different communicators, not just me. And I just want you to know that does doesn't mean that something's wrong. Okay. I'm okay. I'm fine. My marriage is good. I'm not, I'm not about to drive off a cliff. Nothing bad. Everything's good. Okay. Um, it actually means that something's going right. We want to be a people that prioritize development, that give space for others to grow in their gifts. And so actually the month of July, I'm not going to be preaching at all. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be investing in you, encouraging you, but I won't be in the pulpit those, uh, those four weeks. So anyway, just want you guys to know that's what going on. Um, as, you're, uh, as you're ready, will you stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word this morning? We'll read and we are going to jump into this passage. Verse 8, chapter 3 in 1 Peter, it says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay for evil or revile or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is God's word. You can have a seat. Well, we are turning a corner in First Peter this morning where Peter's really going to start to put some flesh on the bones for us. What are our relationships with people outside of the church supposed to look like for a group of exiles like you and me? And not just those friends who you know outside of these places that know you're a Christian and would say like, man, I'm glad you found something that's helpful for you or good for you. But I'm talking about the friends who hate your faith. 
the people who you can, you can feel yourself getting a little uncomfortable around when the subject of Jesus or Christianity come up. You can feel your blood pressure rise, maybe feel your jaw begin to tighten. Those relationships, what does it look like for us to engage in those with people we might even call our enemies? Goodness, I, uh, I tell you what, the best way to get convicted of a text is to have to teach it out loud in front of other people. Because goodness, this week I have been realizing that in my own self, so often my posture toward the people I would call enemies in my life is not immediately compassion. That's not my knee jerk, right? It's, it's, it's four letter words, right? That's what comes out of our hearts so often toward the people that we would disagree with or call enemies. But Peter, his answer to us in those relationships is probably not surprising. He tells us to love them, right? It's like you, you assume we open the Bible, love people. That makes sense. But I want you to hear me. It may not be surprising that Peter tells us to love our enemies, but you need to hear me. It is not easy. It's not easy. Goodness, you feel this all the time. It is not easy to love people who are your enemies. How do you do it? Jesus is an expert at loving his enemies. He is very good at it. In fact, Romans 5.10 tells us this, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Friends, if Jesus had waited to start loving you until you were not his enemy, he never would have started. He wouldn't have started. Jesus didn't only love his enemies by the way that he lived. You need to recognize this. Jesus loved his enemies by the way that he died. Jesus, right here in this passage, is going to show us what it looks like to walk in the trail of love with him. To love so completely that nothing is off the table. There's nothing you're not willing to give up. The, the kind of posture that says, you hate me, perfect. I'm going to love you and serve you. I, uh, I, I have a friend who often tells this story of a, uh, a youth pastor in his life, and there was this kid who would come in often, and he would just harass the youth pastor constantly, call him names, make fun of him, call him out publicly while he's up teaching. And in the middle of a sermon one time at youth group, this kid is making a scene, and what's good for every teenager at one point to get up put in their place, he did this beautifully. He looks at the kid, and from the microphone he says, no matter what you do, I am never going to stop loving you. And the kid cried, okay? <laughs> like, he, he met his hostility with love, and it did something in this dude's soul. Love for your enemies is powerful. The passage is going to show us today what that kind of love looks like. If you're a note taker, here's the deal. We're talking about loving your enemies. Two points. Love has an attitude, and love has a cost, okay? Love has an attitude, Love has a cost. First, first point, love has an attitude. Look back at verse 8. It says this. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Recently, I heard this story I love. There was a, a, an English architect named Christopher Wren, and he was overseeing... <coughs> excuse me, he was overseeing a cathedral being built in London. 
And so I got a frog in my throat or something, and public coughing is just not in vogue right now, so I apologize, everybody. Um, He's overseeing the building of this cathedral in London, and a journalist decides it would be an interesting story to start interviewing some of the workers. This is really fascinating. And so he goes out on the job, he walks around, and he starts asking people, what are you doing? Simple question, right? What are you doing to contribute to this project? And the first person replies, this is a long time ago, I'm cutting stone for 10 shillings a day. That's what I'm doing. The next person, same question. He says, I'm putting in 10 hours a day on this job. Normal answer makes sense. But the third person, the one that gets in the article, he says, what are you doing? And here's what he says. He says, I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren construct one of the greatest cathedrals in the world. Those three people were doing the same job. Okay, but they had wildly different attitudes going into the job, right? They were all doing the same work, but had a different heart. Attitude matters, okay? Especially in loving your enemies. So right here in these few, in these few verses, Peter is kind of summing up his last points. He's been talking about submission to authority and submission in marriage. And he says, if you want to do that well you're going to have to have an attitude adjustment. Something's going to have to change in your attitude. Notice this list right here. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. It's not filled primarily with actions, but what? Attitudes, postures of the hearts. It is the motivation under the behavior that Peter is getting after right here. He's saying something has to change, y'all. Something in our hearts has to change as we do the hard work of love. But he doesn't leave us guessing what needs to change. He gives us a litmus test to determine the state of our attitude. You ready for it? The litmus test that's going to show you what your attitude is actually like? Look back at the list. It says, first, unity of mind. What's unity of mind? This does not mean that everyone thinks the same thing, but it does mean that people cooperate together regardless of what they think and work together. Some translations render this phrase as harmonious. What, what's a harmony, right? You, you may have just heard a harmony as the worship band got up here, right? It's when, when multiple people are singing different notes that are not in competition with each other, but that actually contribute together to make a more beautiful whole. You know when a note is not in harmony, right? Somebody who has the gift of making a joyful noise to the Lord, but not necessarily like a pleasant noise to the Lord, Harmony works together. That's part of the attitude of the love. It is a spirit that says in relationships, hey, we're in this together. We're working together here. We're working together. Next, it says, so that's, that's the first piece, unity of mind. Number two, sympathy. Sympathy. The biblical vision of sympathy is not feeling bad for another person. It is feeling with another person. There's a difference, right? You can feel bad for somebody in the situation that they're in, but if you're actually walking in biblical sympathy, you know what happens? Their tears fill your eyes. 
you feel it. You enter into the emotion of the thing. I heard this week somebody talking about the difference between transparency and vulnerability. Right? I'm, I'm pretty good at transparency. Like, I'm a pretty open book for the most part if you ask me about what's going on in my life. But I'm not always that good at vulnerability. Transparency gives you data, right? It tells you, here are the things that are going on in my world. Here's what vulnerability does. It tells you the things that are going on in the world, but it sits in the emotion of it all. It feels it. It's honest. It's, it's actually like, I'm not just giving you data. Like, I'm giving you something in my heart that's hard or that's difficult or that's real. That's a core part of sympathy, actually giving your heart to another person. Do you have sympathy? Number three, what does the Bible say in verse eight? It says, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. Brotherly love is real love. How many of you have a brother in the room? Anybody have a brother or a sister? Let's do that too. Okay, you have a sibling. So you know, um, it's the person that you, you love, but they also get under your skin a little bit, right? So it's like, man, I, I can kill my brother, but nobody else can kill my brother, right? I've got his back. Don't you, don't you call my brother silly, I, but only I can do that, okay? Brotherly love is a kind of family love. It's a messy love. It's when you are really yourself. And so is the other person, right? You just show up and you just feel like, man, I don't, I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to be interesting right now. I'm just, I'm with this person. I have brotherly love with them. It's somebody who isn't just a fan of yours. They're not just impressed with you, right? Fans are kind of fun, right? They think you're amazing. They think you're cool. But man, a friend is so much better. Somebody who's not impressed with you or feels like they just want to be with you. They can be honest with you. Is that your attitude toward the difficult people in your life, brotherly love? What does the Bible say next? Look back at verse 8. It says, a tender heart. If brotherly love <coughs> is about authenticity in love, about realness, a tender heart is about sincerity in love. It's the kind of love that says, man, I feel something for you. Truthfully, man, it does not matter how bad my day has been. Like it can have been the worst day. Everything went wrong. Every conversation was hard. Every leadership challenge was difficult. But when I walk in my house and I see Aaron, I feel something for that girl. Okay. She is amazing. Like something happens in my soul when I see her. I feel a tenderness, a warmth, a compassion toward her. I was really hoping for like a, uh, out of that, but it didn't, it, the moment's passed. Don't do it now. <laughs> Peter is asking us right here, is your heart warm toward the people in your life? Do you not just put up with them, but do you feel affection for those people, especially for your enemies? My goodness, isn't it not hard to feel affection for the people who are trying to destroy you? It's not natural. It's not natural. And then finally, he gives us one more thing in that list in verse 8. He says the last. Look back, it says, a humble mind. You know what a humble mind does? 
it says, this isn't about me. It's not about this slight isn't about me. This situation isn't about me. This problem isn't ultimately about me. A humble mind doesn't put you in the center of your own universe. It puts you adjacent to the center of the universe, which is Jesus, right? It's when you, when you look at another person, a humble mind says this, it's like, man, your win is actually my win. And I believe that in my soul. Like I am not the center of my own universe. Think of um, where my Star Wars nerds at. It's finally happening, you guys. I'm using a Star Wars illustration. We, we made it. Um, think of Yoda versus Luke Skywalker, right? Luke is kind of the, the center of the story. He's the chosen one. He's the guy who's going to lead the Jedi. I, I need to quit talking about Star Wars very quickly because I'm going to get, somebody's going to correct me, all right? I don't know that much. Um, but Yoda's relationship with him, he doesn't try to position himself in the center of the story. You know what he does? He looks at Luke and he says, I'm going to give you everything I have to make you the best Jedi you could possibly be. That's the spirit of a humble mind. It doesn't position yourself in the center of the story. It looks at others as more valuable, significant. Why does all this matter? Let's ask, where, where does your attitude need an adjustment this morning? Where does your attitude, your attitude need an adjustment this morning? I've got, a, uh, I've got some application questions for you here. These are good to take note of, okay? If you take notes, write these down, take a picture of these, whatever. These are great to think through this week as you're thinking about this text. Number one, are your relationships marked by harmony? Are your relationships marked by harmony? The Bible just told us to have unity of mind, right? Or are you constantly offending others and they're just too sensitive, Nick? They're just too sensitive. Do you make it hard for others to find unity with you by making things that aren't that important the most important? Or are you eager for harmony? Like, are you, are you wanting it? Is that the craving of your heart to experience unity of mind with other believers? Do you pursue it, harmony of mind? To pursue harmony of mind, hear me, you have to legitimately value the contribution of another. You have to actually think like, man, there, there's value in what this person how they're made in the image of God, what they have to say, what, what is true about them. This is going to be a really freeing thing for all of us, okay? When we're starting to think about an attitude of unity of mind, I want you to hear this. This is a gift. You are not right about everything. Amen. Relax. <laughs> it's okay. You are not right about everything. And even when you are right, you can hold your rightness with a spirit of humility. This fosters unity of mind, this humble posture, okay? Do you have harmony, are your relationships marked by harmony? Number two, do you feel genuine sympathy for others? Is that what things are like in your heart and your soul? Or do you, do you feel indifferent when others are struggling or suffering? Is it easy for you to just turn the emotional mute button on? when hardship comes up for other people? Or 
when somebody comes and shares with you like, man, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm having a hard time, do you turn the conversation into what I call the pain Olympics? Like, oh, you think that's bad. You need to hear what I got going on. It's way worse than what you got going on. An attitude of sympathy creates space for others that says, I am totally present with you right now. I want, I want to carry your suffering the way that Jesus has carried mine. Do you feel genuine sympathy for others? Number three, does anyone know you well enough to get the real you? Does anybody know you well enough? The Bible commands us to have brotherly love. You can't do brotherly love in abstract. People have to actually know you. The real you is the one that's there when there's nothing left to prove. Do you know anyone else that way? When the curtains are back? Can I tell you that an attitude of brotherly love does not happen on accident? You don't just stumble into brotherly love. It takes intention. It takes quality time. It takes quantity time to experience brotherly love. Can I be honest with you? This is one that I really struggle with. Like I can love people. I can love people. I enjoy people. But man, it is not natural for me to let people know the real me. Like that takes work for me. I got to really think about it. I sat down with a friend this week and was like, we were about to start a conversation about something else. I was like, okay, I'm thinking about this passage and I need to just be vulnerable with you about some things in my life. I need to just open up. And it felt really weird and I hated it, but it was awesome. I was received. It's a discipline. Question number four, do you feel dread or delight for the people closest to you? This is about the attitude of sympathy. Affection for a person isn't just about how great they are, okay? That should be freeing to some of you. When you're struggling in your relationships to have affection with somebody, you can have legitimate affection for a person that really rubs you the wrong way. It's possible. That attitude is about the state of your heart. If you are walking with Jesus, there should not be any human being that you cannot see the dignity, the beauty, the glory of Christ in after looking for a minute. Like you don't even have to look that hard. You can see shadows and glimpses of the goodness and glory of Jesus. Like, do you have that spirit of, of delight for them? Or man, are you just putting up with a lot of people in your life? Man, maybe those people you're putting up with, those are the people God is actually trying to use to get through to you to change your heart, to love your enemies. And then number five, this is about uh, a humble mind, the last, the last piece that verse gives us. <clears throat> will your attitude be me or we? Will your attitude be me or we? We <coughs> is the way of Jesus. To be part of a church family is to say to the people around you, I am going to prioritize your good over my own. You know how supernatural that is? Who wants to do that? 
That is not the natural way of looking at the world. If survival of the fittest is all that there actually is, there would be no point than actually prioritizing any other person but yourself. But if Jesus is your king, if Jesus is the Lord of your life, you look at the world upside down. You have a different value system than everybody else in your world. Will your attitude be me or we? We is so much better, you guys. And in loving your enemies, goodness, without these attitudes, without these things running in the background, it's nearly impossible to actually truly love your enemies. Number two, point number two, love has a cost. Love has a cost. I remember when, uh, when I was going away to college, I just signed up for classes for my undergraduate and then you, you get the dreaded statement that's like, okay, here's how much it's actually going to cost. Here's the bill. And so I remember opening that up. That's when people still sent paper mail. And I opened it up. I fold it all out. And I look. It's like tuition. Okay, that makes sense to me. And then I start looking at the breakdown of fees. Anybody else just feel like the fury of hell raise up in you when you get a statement with fees? I'm like... Gym fee? I'm not going to the gym. Why would I need that one? Or um, student center fee. It's like, hey, if you'll take that 225 bucks off, I'll never go. Okay, like whatever you got to do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna nickel my dime, nickel and dime my way into a free college experience. That's what I'm trying to do here. Hidden costs are infuriating for us, right? You need to understand, there are hidden fees in loving your enemies. There are hidden costs that are going to drive you nuts. And Peter, right here in these verses, is going to show us some of the costs. Look back at verse 9. It says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Peter is doing exactly what Jesus has done right here. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. In Matthew 5, 9 through 11, Jesus says this. Should be up on the screen in front of you. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Man, that word reviled, you know what it feels like to be reviled? To be hated? Spoken poorly of? Peter right here is telling us, in other words, and Peter and Jesus are both telling us, wherever you get shoved around, criticized, beaten down, and you repay that wickedness with goodness, you are walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Following Jesus is hard. Okay, if anybody has told you that becoming a Christian is going to make your life immediately easier, that person is lying to you and trying to sell you something. The way of Jesus is hard, but the way of Jesus is good. 
It's good. It is so unnatural to love like this. So unnatural. Warren Wearsby helps us right here. Here's a quotation I want you guys to see. I don't know if, oh yeah, there we go. Excellent. He says, as Christians, we can live on one of three levels. He's commenting on this passage, actually. He says, we can return evil for good, which is the satanic level. Or we can return good for good and evil for evil, which is the human level. Or we can return good for evil, which is the divine level. Jesus is the perfect example of this latter approach. See, good for good, evil for evil makes a ton of sense to me, right? That feels pretty intuitive. Like you're good to me, I'll be good to you. You're bad to me, I'll be bad to you. That makes sense. It's intuitive. And sometimes when I'm having a terrible day, repaying evil for good is as easy as breathing. Goodness. It's so frustrating when that comes out of me. I tried to think of the best illustration of what that looks like, that returning evil for good this week. And um, the office helped me, right? Um, thank God for Michael Scott. He helps us a lot. But he's going through a court case. And if you know anything about the show, Michael hates this guy named Toby, okay? Poor Toby. Just a really good guy, but Michael hates him. And Michael's going through a tough time. He's sitting there eating his lunch. And Toby walks in and he says, man, I've been through a really hard time like this before too. He's like, I've been through a court case. It was so difficult. And I'm just really sorry you're going through this. And Michael stands up and he flips his tray off the table and walks away. Okay. That's the clearest example of what it looks like <laughs> to have somebody trying to do good to you and repaying it with evil. Goodness. But isn't that us sometimes? Like, I don't want to be loved. I don't want your goodness right now. I'm not interested in that. That third level that Warren Wearsby just pointed us to, returning good for evil is the heart of God. It's the heart of God breaking into the world. That is where verse 9 ends up leading us. Look back, it says, But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called. Thanks, bro. Appreciate that. Bless, for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. Obtain a blessing. What is he talking about right here? Peter uses a psalm to clarify what he means in verses 10 through 12. Look back at the Bible in verse 10. It says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What in the world is Peter talking about right here? Here's what I think he's saying. When you do good in the face of evil, God sees you, and God hears you. God sees you and God hears you. And goodness, that may not seem like much, but in the Hebrew understanding of sight, this is why when you're reading your Bible, always pay attention to what it says that God sees, or when it says that Jesus looks at someone, it is telling you that he is about to act. That's the understanding right here, that he's about to act on that person's Behalf. And that verse right there tells us in verse 12 that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. 
When you return good for evil, God sees you. He acts on your behalf. He is with you. And this is how the righteous behave in the face of evil. They repay evil with goodness. That's the calling. It's not an easy calling. That's the, that's the cost that we're called to pay. We need to ask a couple of questions here to help us think through this. Number one, is Jesus the source of my love? I want to ask that question. Is Jesus the source of your love? When we think about what he's calling us to do right here, he's echoing the words of Jesus, right? He's, he's taking us back to Jesus. When you and I are operating with really limited resources of love, we cannot truly afford to pay the cost that's being asked of us right here. I want you to hear this. If you love your enemies, if you really do it, it's going to bankrupt you. This is why, unless Jesus has saved you and filled you with his spirit, trying to do the costly work of loving your enemies is a suicide march. You can't give something that you don't possess. If the mercy of Jesus is a concept that's nice, but it's not your mercy, it's not become real to your heart, behaving this way makes no sense. In fact, it would be stupid. But once Jesus is yours and you are his, guess what begins to happen? When Jesus becomes the source of your love, his bank account becomes your bank account. All of a sudden, you are going to stop loving out of the limits of your own storehouse capacity, and you're going to start loving out of the capacity of Jesus' storehouse. That's what happens when Jesus becomes the source of your love. You can actually start to pay the cost, because hear me, Jesus pays the cost. Is he the source? No, number, number two, the question I want you to ask here, where am I resistant to paying the cost of love? There's got to be a specific place in your life right now that you feel resistance to paying the cost. All of us have it. The cost is steep. In fact, I'll even say this. You can have your dignity or you can love your enemies, but you can't have both. It costs a lot. Of course, in the end, Jesus is going to raise you up. He's going to be with you. He sees you. But right now, it's going to hurt. It's going to cost you something. Loving your difficult boss, loving your professor that hates Christianity. It's going to cost you. Emotionally, it's going to cost you in anxiety. Socially, it's going to cost you as you look silly for living as a Christian. Relationally, it's going to cost you as people distance themselves from you because you're standing with Jesus. Can I encourage you this morning in paying the cost of love? It is better for you. Don't miss this, church. It is better for you to stand on the right side of Jesus and on the wrong side of history. Wherever Jesus is, that is the place to stand. Why? Because he's there. Because Jesus is there, the most caring, intentional, loving person that has ever existed, calls you his friend. Why would you not stand with him? Where does it even matter that anyone would be against you if Jesus is standing with you? 
Come on, he is worth standing for this morning. Why not live for him? Why not? And then the last question, I'm almost done right here. The last question I want us to ask, do you see that you are seen by God? Do you see that you are seen by God? Some of us need this desperately this morning. What verse 12 is telling us, you need to hear this. If you are in Christ, there is no moment of suffering no experience of slander, no hardship from this world that God does not see. And remember, when the Bible says that God sees something, it tells us that he's about to act. In fact, in the book of Exodus, right in the first chapter, it says that as God's people suffered under slavery, I love this, it says, the Lord saw and the Lord knew. Meaning, he's about to do something. You need to hear this this morning. If you are suffering and loving your enemy, you will be vindicated. Don't give up. Jesus is with you. Grab hold of your inheritance. Grab hold of the coming blessing. In fact, Revelation 21 tells us that in the end, when the world is made new, that Jesus will wipe every tear from our eyes. Every tear. And here's the thing. I don't think he just means the tears that will be there in that moment. I think he means every tear literally forever. Every tear that you've cried while loving your enemies. Every moment of suffering from your past. Guess what? Your Lord is so good that he's been collecting your tears forever. There's not one that has fallen to the ground and following him that he has not caught in his loving hands. And because he sees you, there is a moment coming when all the pain, all the emotional and physical scar tissue will be wiped away in an instant by Jesus. Church family, he sees you. He sees you. Today's passage has shown us some of the attitudes and the actions that we should have as righteous people. A righteous person is someone who is right with God and acts like it. But if we're honest, we're not righteous. In fact, we're so completely unrighteous that we could never live this out without a miracle of grace. Band, y'all can come on up. You see, righteousness became a person in Jesus Christ. Jesus, Jesus didn't only have the behaviors of loving his enemies. He had an attitude of joy and love all along the way. Jesus paid the cost of love because he knew that the Father would vindicate him in the end. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him who knew no sin. I'm sorry. Uh, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness became a person so you could become a righteous person. 
So you could stand before God as though you have nailed every part of this when you full well know that you haven't. Friend, if you are in Christ, you have a righteousness that you did not earn, but hear me, is completely, legally, totally yours. And is completely free. What if our church was so obsessed with Jesus, the source of our righteousness, that loving our enemies became normal here? That we actually did it from the heart. That would look like the culture of heaven coming to Champaign-Urbana. I mean, goodness, if that was our reputation in this city, like, man, no matter how much I hated those Christians, they just loved me more. It didn't make any sense. That is the love of Jesus. It is the love of heaven, and it is ours to have. And as Peter has prompted us today, it is ours to share. It's ours to share. Let's pray. Well, Father, we love you. And um, we're honestly, we are such amateurs at loving our enemies. Forgive us for our attitudes. And Lord Jesus, where we are resistant to the cost, we just confess that you, you've not called us to a single thing that you have not walked through before us. You paid the cost, the ultimate cost, to redeem your enemies. Thank you, Jesus. Make us a loving people. In your name, amen. I love you, New City.